electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber, along with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. Carl and Jim both have the morning off this morning. Let's give you a look at futures, of course, as we get ready. Well, we got two more trading days of the year, right? Yeah, there it is. Uh, we look like we're going to have a slightly higher uh, open at this point after yet another gain yesterday for these record-setting markets. Let's get to our roadmap this morning. Uh, and it begins with some news out late yesterday involving, well, potential changes or at least an activist campaign at Intel, third point calling on the chip maker to explore strategic alternatives. Then a green light for AstraZeneca and Oxford's COVID-19 vaccine in the UK as the country deals with another surge of cases and a new variant of the coronavirus. And finally, futures pointing to a higher open uh, this morning, as David just mentioned. The Dow, S&P, Nasdaq closed lower for the first time in several sessions yesterday. And let's start there, of course, with those markets. As Mike just mentioned, futures indicating stocks near record highs in today's session as we do count down the end of 2020. Thankfully, I think most people would say, Mike, at this point. Um, but we rely on you to sort of give us the highs and the lows. And there have been plenty of highs as we end the year here when it comes to the markets, perhaps unexpectedly given where we were some seven, eight months ago. Yeah, almost completely unexpectedly, I guess, by, by most observers. And what's interesting about existing in the markets is that we've been living in 2021 for a while because that's a lot of what the, the rally this year and the recovery uh, and valuations, frankly, uh, are pricing in. It's just obviously this rebound, this sort of sense that uh, we had a, a kind of flash recession, a major shock, uh, massive policy response, and markets been benefiting uh, from a look toward that rebound uh, that typically follows one of these shocks. Now, uh, what I do find interesting is the overall market, really the big cap index, They've been in one of these very orderly grinds higher for most of this month. Yesterday, uh, S&P touched 3750, backed right off of there. Who knows if that means it's kind of short term running out of gas to a degree. But a lot of the stuff that everyone was pointing to and saying this market's gone wild. There's a lot of speculative stuff happening here. They've come off massively uh, in, 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 you know, uh, in large part. So uh, you want to look at Lemonade down 14 percent off its highs. Snowflake down 29 percent off its highs. Palantir off 26 percent. Uh, Moderna off 35 percent. The IPO index down 10 percent. So all the stuff that people were getting a little bit exercised about that's saying that this market's gone around the bend, that's come in at the same time. The, the overall market has kind of hung in there. So uh, who knows if we can just kind of bleed the patient in that way and, and have it feel better. Uh, but uh, no doubt market's overbought. No doubt people are a little bit overconfident uh, about how next year looks. Nothing should surprise anybody in terms of a little bit of a, a shakeout in January. We've had some of those in recent years. Uh, but the overall structure of this market is really hard to argue with with what's happening uh, under the hood. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of incredible. It's, it's not surprising, per se, to hear that, that you have some of those high-flying names that, are, uh, that have come off notably um, in, in recent days. Because, I mean, if, 
if you have been invested in one of those names, you've made quite a bit of money, presumably, um, on your investment. So why not take some profit there uh, and basically, I guess, play with house money? Um, and it will be interesting to see what happens in January. But I mean, the S&P, and I, I realize that the markets closed marginally or fractionally lower yesterday, but we still hit fresh record highs again earlier in the session. 37th all-time high for the S&P, 21st for the Dow. This year, by the way, just this year, NASDAQ 66. If you were on some remote island, completely cut off from civilization and humanity as we know it, and you were just dialing back into the market here, you'd actually probably think that 2020 was a pretty good year, uh, not realizing how incredible it was, the fastest plunge into bear market in history, and I believe the fastest recovery as well to then see Record high after record high. Um, I'd also just note, I continue, I know I'm like a dog with a bone with this, but I continue to watch the dollar. Two-year lows for the dollar index. As traders are ignoring some of these U.S. stimulus delays, although we are going to get that $600 check, and that's already going out according to those tweets from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. You got the dollar following to the lowest since April 2018. You got the pound strengthening against the dollar on this AstraZeneca uh, Oxford vaccine approval in the U.K. Some other pretty notable FX moves right now. Um, But... Of course, we see this weaker dollar, and that gives lift to things like commodities, materials, industrials, um, some of these sectors, some of these stocks that are part of that uh, reflation rotation, if you will. Right, Mike? Without a doubt. It's, it's really all pretty much in tune. So dollar goes down, things priced, and dollar goes up. Dollar goes down means global risk appetites are, are certainly in recovery mode, and we expect just globally, central banks to, to stay, uh, you know, pretty much promoting a, the liquidity story for a long time. Uh, it, it all works. Credit markets, David, I think, you know, we, we both use those as a touchstone, uh, been incredibly firm. And here we have this story where credit spreads are now back to bef- where they were pretty much before we got the COVID shock. The absolute level of things like junk yields is record lows. And we're talking about a perhaps incremental shortage of new corporate debt next year because issuance was so heavy this year. So what happens uh, to to all that money? People are chasing the same paper at this point. Yeah, hard to imagine those junk spreads uh, having tightened that way, Mike, given where they were for at least some period of time as we were so concerned as the credit markets were obviously deeply concerned about not just a recession back in April, but the possibility of a depression is what people were talking about. And numerous bankruptcies didn't happen, did it? Uh, The ability to raise capital, uh, obviously, with the great help of the Fed, um, helped a lot of companies. The question now, Mike, becomes, you know, are there sort of these zombie companies out there that simply by virtue of the nature of their ability to service their debt kind of keep going, even though their business model isn't necessarily one that would point to great, uh, great growth ahead? Without a doubt. And, you know, there are. Um, The question is, you know, to what result? Um, You know, they they can kind of just be 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 off to the side of the overall market. We have a couple of different markets, uh, you know, operating at the same time. Yet on on the one side, you have companies with cash flow and they've been priced to a level that's basically matching up with where bonds are priced. So uh, things that, that seem like they have steady cash flows or dividend yields, they they look expensive because bonds look expensive. And now you have this other market where it's like this public venture capital kind of casino type deal happening uh, where where basically people are looking for massive winners and just spreading their bets around. And and there's a short term speculative piece of that. It it feels like a seller's market. There's no doubt about it. You know, you're seeing the SPACs, you're seeing the IPOs, uh, but that can really carry on for quite a long time. 
uh, without it really having a reckoning. Yeah, and of course, all of this speaks to, and David, you just touched on this, but all this speaks to just how incredibly involved the Federal Reserve is in these markets right now and, and, and buoying, um, you know, what the activity that we've seen, essentially, and not just the Fed, but also central banks around the globe uh, in this broader conversation right now. And of course, that is one of the debates, that is one of the discussions that's really been starting to surface in re recent weeks on Wall Street. I've seen quite a number of notes circulating about it, about, about this debate on whether we are going to see inflation begin to raise its head in a more meaningful way next year, regardless of what the Fed says in terms of policy uh, and where it's going to and, and it's, it's anticipation of standing pat on, on low rates for the next couple of years. So that I think is also going to be one of those key things to watch is going to be that yield curve and what long rates, for example, are doing and how the Fed has to react or, or doesn't have to react, depending on what we see in terms of an economic resurgence next year on these vaccine rollouts, which I know is going to be something we're going to talk about a little bit more right now too. those vaccines, because we've got more news on that front, David. Yeah, we do. Although uh, if history is any guide, man, it's uh, there's not going to be any inflation and we're not going to see higher rates because I think, I don't know, we've been sitting here every year for at least the last 11 years talking about that possibility. So modern Morgan, monetary theory. There out. we go. Being yeah. tested, I guess, yeah. in, in so. real life, real time. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned the vaccines, of course. The U.K. did grant AstraZeneca and Oxford emergency authorization use for their COVID-19 vaccine. Cases, of course, continue to rise around the world, certainly here in the U.S. Uh, and as well, Morgan, there is some concern in terms of the distribution of the vaccine. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, of course, being distributed here, but not going to come anywhere near what had been the hope of having as many as 20 million people inoculated by the end of December. Uh, and at our current rate, we're not going to get anywhere close to where we'd hope to. So there's certainly got to have to be a significant increase in inoculations uh, fairly soon to yeah. start to hit some of the targets that have been out there. Yeah, and certainly this is something President-elect Biden talked about yesterday, um, stressing, you know, his plans when he comes into office the end of next month um, to, to ramp that up and, and be more aggressive about it and potentially invoke the Defense uh, Production Act more aggressively as well. That being said, it's, in, it's curious to see where the bottlenecks are happening. I mean, you've had, what, more than 2 million, at least as of Monday, 2 million uh, Americans um, inoculated, receiving one of those first doses of one of those two vaccines that have been uh, approved for emergency use here in the U.S. And it's something like another 12 million that have been distributed and that are basically either at the state level or lower than the state level um, being distributed and, and, and awaiting, um, I guess, being uh, awaiting being administered if that's proper English. I'm not to so sure if it is. Um, but uh, but so, yeah, it does seem like there are vaccines that are being created and being delivered, but getting into people's arms seems to be another story right now, at least. I think one of the other key things to keep an eye on, especially from an investor standpoint, is going to be how many, I know we've been talking about this too, David, how many people who are able to get that vaccine right now are going to get that vaccine right now, especially as we do get, and I realize that these are in the minority, but we are getting those reports of adverse reactions, uh, you know, uncomfortable or painful side effects in the day or days after. Um, how many people are going to be willing to do that? And from a Wall Street, from an investor standpoint, um, whether that's even factoring into some of the models out there that are uh, forecasting um, a strong return to economic growth um, and normalcy, if you will, next year upon this idea of herd immunity. You know, Mike, also, uh, and just in terms of 
pre-market movers, yeah. we do have some of these, and we've got some of those names up on the board right now, uh, some of those biotech and, and pharma companies that have been developing vaccines. Uh, we're seeing some more movement because we have had some more headlines this morning. Yeah, if you wonder exactly yeah. how much more uh, is uh, is in that trade, um, you know, I, I keep pointing out that the day of Pfizer Monday when we got those great results uh, from their vaccine candidate, November 9th, uh, we, we traded up to, to 36.45 that morning. And even though it seems like the market's been doing go, going nothing but up, we're just a few percent above that right now. So it seems like more vaccines, the better. Everyone wants to see the rollout be successful. But it, you, you almost wonder if it's the premise of what's been happening in the markets for a while right now that we are on this march and, uh, and going to get more uh, choices on the vaccine front, Dave. Yeah. Finally, guys, wanted to come to a story that uh, hit late yesterday. Uh, I think Reuters uh, broke it. But uh, Dan Loeb, third point, of course, urging Intel to explore strategic alternatives. It was a letter that was sent, I'm told, uh, 20 minutes prior to that. They had a phone call letting them know it was coming. Uh, of course, Intel has been under fire for any number of reasons, including vast underperformance versus some of its peers. It's miss of a cycle in terms of manufacturing. Uh, a lead being taken to some extent in terms of the ability to produce smaller chips by the likes of Taiwan Semi uh, and Samsung uh, and others. There you see it. Uh, it did have a nice pop yesterday. You can see it there on the story. I have a bit more to add here, of course. Listen, one of the key things is the fact that the nominating window here is January 15th. It closes. Uh, and so one would anticipate that third point, which has a position of roughly a billion, let's call it, all in-house, by the way, uh, there's no sidecar, as we say, where they raise money from other investors, perhaps their existing LPs and the like. Um, it is right now in swap, but they, they filed Hart Scott. They can put it in their name pretty quickly. Um, yeah, you say, well, as a percentage, still not that big. But of course, uh, Third Point has a great deal of influence. And one would imagine there are a lot of long-only shareholders who share in some of the frustration that is out there uh, in terms of what Intel has failed to accomplish over these last couple of years as it is, well, it's lost the lead, hasn't it? I mean, take a look at the loss of market share to AMD and the performance of that stock versus AMD, for example. That is simply one example of sort of the frustration we're talking about. In its letter, though, a third point did not go after specifically Bob Swan, of course, the company's CEO who uh, joined us not long ago uh, for an interview, sort of talked more just broadly about the loss of talent at the company and how they can try to start to rebuild that need for talent uh, at Intel. Interesting to note, of course, Mike, that this is a company that trades at close to like 10, 11 times earnings, far below the group, far below, of course, the likes of some of its key competitors as well. And so if you're Loeb, you know, I, I look at the track record there, third point, they went into Sony, which has done extraordinarily well, even though Sony did not actually follow much of any of its advice, but it was the right stock, maybe not necessarily, um, the battle won, but they did great. Disney, well, they sent that letter in, and then Disney did a lot of different things. That has performed extraordinarily well. So oftentimes, it's much more about the stock selection than the battle. But in this one, it may be about both, because they do feel there's little downside given how undervalued Intel is. And if you could get the multiple up to even, let's say, 15 times, you would obviously see significant increase in the stock price. And there is frustration, as I said, amongst long onlys. And so one would imagine when they go to ISS, for example, how do you prove your case if you're Intel? That'll be interesting uh, yeah. for them to do. They've also brought on Evercore as an advisor. We'll see what they can do in terms of that. And then this larger question of, well, can you do something with manufacturing that really adds value? Can mm. you sell some assets potentially as well that adds value? Unclear. Is it a... 
uh, a national champion. You know, I actually asked yeah. Bob Swan uh, a few weeks ago when we had him on, Morgan, about this idea of national security being embedded in the in the in the overall uh, play that Intel is in terms of semiconductors, given it is by far the largest U.S. manufacturer. Here's what he had to say. We power 95% of the digital infrastructure today, and we have a large uh, U.S. industrial base, and we play a very important role in national security and a safe uh, and secure supply chain for the manufacturing and development of chips. In whatever decision we make, we will continue to have high-volume manufacturing and invest in technology development here in this country. Well, yeah, Mr. Swan under a lot of pressure already in terms of that decision, Morgan, and now, of course, a lot mm -hmm. more pressure coming in the form of Mr. Loeb and Third Point. Yeah, and it's a, it is interesting because it does seem like part of the way this argument is being phrased by Third Point is that essentially it is a national security issue in, in addition to being a company-specific and investor issue here. And, and, of course, it comes as the government is looking to do things like incentivize more chip manufacturing here in the U.S. I don't think we're done talking about semis by a long shot, not to mention its key competitors with all the big merger news that you've been covering so closely, David. But speaking of notable investors... It's back in the black for Bill Ackman in 2020. We're going to break that down after the break as well. So stay with us as futures point to a positive open. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. It's been a comeback year for Bill Ackman and Pershing Square in 2020. Our Leslie Picker explains. Leslie. Hey, David, that's right. Bill Ackman is on pace to notch returns of nearly 70 percent this year, making his Pershing Square one of the best performing hedge funds of 2020. Now, those gains weren't captured through his typical activism style, publicly pushing management to make changes like you were talking about with Third Point and Intel. No, these returns at Pershing Square were driven largely by a hedge in the credit default swap index markets put on uh, back in late February and early March over concerns about the pandemic. And subsequently, Ackman unwound those hedges for a $2.6 billion profit, which he then plowed into his portfolio companies, plus reinstating some holdings. Those include some companies that have been uh, depressed by the shutdowns, including restaurant brands and Hilton, but others like Chipotle, Starbucks, Agilent Technologies and Lowe's have actually outperformed this year. And then Ackman raised this year's largest SPAC or special purpose acquisition company, $4 billion there in hand to fund a future acquisition. Even though it has yet to find one, that SPAC is up 20% since its debut earlier this year, while Ackman at his overseas closed-end fund is up about 80% this year. All-in, Ackman is now managing $17 billion. Now, it's worth noting that this year's returns follow last year's gains of nearly 60%, putting the firm well above its high watermark to collect incentive fees. But those gains follow several years of negative returns, guys. Wow. Yeah. 
you could have played him right, man. You would have nailed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leslie, thank you. That's interesting. Two years in a row, very strong performance for Bill Ackman. Let's get a look at futures as we head to break. Of course, we've got an opening bell about uh, eight or so minutes away. You can see it right there at the bottom of the screen, 832, in fact. Uh, And there we are looking for a higher open. Stay with us on Squawk. Today's top story, the flavor merger of the century between the peanut butter group and Chocolatey Corp. Joining me is a PBC executive. Thanks for having me, Barry. Now, how did you know the merger and the byproduct of it, Jif peanut butter and chocolate flavored spread, would be a success? You know, it was a gut feeling, a rumbling, if you will. Besides, they're two titans of taste. Very true. Goes great with pretzels. And pancakes. Apples too, I bet. Try Jif PBC today. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Watch Cat today, Baird naming Caterpillar its top idea of 2021 and raising its price target on stock up to 220. We got a lot more squawk in the street still ahead, so stay with us. So Trump administration's plan to distribute vaccines is falling behind, far behind. But as I long feared and warned, the effort to distribute and administer the vaccine is not progressing as it should. A few weeks ago, Trump administration suggests that 20 million Americans could be vaccinated by the end of December. With only a few days left in December, we've only vaccinated a few million so far. And the pace of the vaccination program is moving now, uh, as it, if it continues to move as it is now, it's going to take years, not months, to vaccinate the American people. That, of course, if it were to continue, uh, one would expect, Mike, might change investors' opinions about how quickly we can fully reopen the economy. Mm. Uh, unclear, of course, at this point. You know, our, our former colleague Rebecca Jarvis uh, tweeting as well. Um, I read her thread earlier uh, about some real problems in Florida with senior citizens lining up and failing to get vaccines, staying overnight, some Kind of bad scenes there. So uh, it's certainly worrisome at this point. I think over 3,200 deaths yesterday as well in the United States from the virus. Yeah, and there's been a little bit of a stutter step in that reopening trade, I would say, in the last uh, couple of days. It sort of goes back and forth day, but it's very unclear what truly is embedded with any kind of precision in terms of an expectation of what we're going to call a return to normal. Is it, you know, at the end of the spring, mid-year? Uh, market just seems to be okay with the idea that we're trending in that direction and that uh, slow vaccine rollout is frustrating and probably holds things up in terms of an economic rebound. But, you know, each person vaccinated is, uh, is, is better than, uh, than not. So um, it, it's very tough to say. Also, uh, difficult to, to know what President-elect Biden might be able to do, be willing to do in terms of trying to create uh, more of a sense of either urgency on the vaccine rollout, but also uh, in the meantime, if we're going to try to push for more uh, restrictions. Markets shrugged a lot of that stuff off right now, just feeling like the, the underlying forces are just in favor of, uh, of more activity next year than less uh, at this point, Morgan. Yeah, and it almost seems like, um, 
I don't want to say bad news is good news, but if it does take longer for the economy to reopen, there does seem to be this expectation baked in that stimulus will continue to happen um, in some form or fashion, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's probably, uh, you know, a stabilizing thing for the markets at these levels as well. Um, but again, we do have some of these positive uh I guess, news headlines from names like AstraZeneca, CureVac. You've got some stuff coming out of China, Sinopharm uh, as well um, to keep an eye on in terms of more vaccines that could come online next year. In the meantime, we do have the opening bells, David, uh, and it does look like more green than red for the S&P to start here. We're starting the day up three-tenths of a percent, 37.38 is the level for the S&P. Yep, and there you see it, of course, at the NYC and the NASDAQ as well. And as Morgan said, of course, our real-time exchange back at uh, headquarters. Mike, I'd like to come to you to, you know, sometimes I ask uh, uh, Jim Cramer uh, when it's just uh, the two of us uh, what the key to the market is. I might sort of ask the same question of you in a broader sense, sort of what you may be focused on in terms of trading today or what you're looking at that may be a trend perhaps that you'll be following uh, as we head into the year, uh, the new year. The trend really, uh, and, and I think the key factor has been the calendar, to be honest with you. Uh, the, the very strong seasonal period, it's been very difficult to fight. And for weeks, we've been able to say sentiment is looking a little bit extended. People are getting a little too happy with this market. It's feeling a little bit too easy uh, to trade and make profits. And that usually uh, requires some kind of retrenchment or some kind of flattening out of the market. But during the seasonal period, very difficult to say. Now the question is, we roll ahead into January. You know, we did eventually have carryover of the rally, let's say in 2018, which looked kind of like these conditions. And then you got a big air pocket. Other things have to come along, though. There has to be a, a plausible excuse uh, for something like that. So all that stuff, I think, is, uh, is the backdrop. But the things to watch is the real risk appetite tells in the last couple of days that have hit some turbulence. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin's at a high right now, but you did see it back off a little bit. I mentioned the IPO ETF. Let's look, you know, who can we talk enough about the ARK ETFs? They, uh, the mm. flagship one is down 9 or 10 percent. They become uh, almost a bellwether for this type of, you know, huge momentum trade in disruptive type technologies. Been phenomenal performers, phenomenal gatherers of assets. And then when the market's a little bit rough, those stocks become a target because they own so much of them. So all that stuff is, are we basically bleeding away some of the recklessness in some just pullbacks, routine pullbacks, but sharp ones in some of the crazier stocks and leaving the rest of the market more or less intact? That, that was, the, that was the, the action on Monday. So the fangs uh, rally as, as some of the overheated stuff uh, cooled off. So all those stuff, all those things, I think, are, uh, are coming into play. Everyone's pointing to the, the runoff in Georgia. Uh, next Tuesday. Obviously, yeah. the market's going to be watching it closely. It's totally unclear to me what the main inference is going to be almost on any outcome. Because th- between stimulus uh, probabilities, uh, tax increase probabilities, and, and anything else you might, uh, might think that uh, change of control the Senate might bring, it's really unclear, Morgan. Yeah. Um, uh, meantime, I mean, one name that has actually continued to move higher and is moving higher in, in trade so far today uh, are the cybersecurity names. Um, Bug, the Global X Cybersecurity ETF, for example, it's up, I mean, it's up modestly this morning, but month to date, 23 percent um, really speaks to uh, the pockets, I guess, of tech and of software. We are still continuing to see that demand uh, and perhaps no surprise, David, given the fact that we did see that massive solar winds hack and, and more, it seems, on a daily basis seems to come out about that. And of course, I think the read through there from an investor standpoint is that that's only going to continue to drive demand for some of these cybersecurity names uh, that are publicly listed and also potentially bring some yeah. more that are private onto the market in 2021. We'll see what, what happens. 
happens on that front. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's funny because, of course, it was a focus for us not that long ago, that massive Russian infiltration, uh, Morgan. And we still don't really know how deep they are, where they are, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's kind of fallen off a bit in terms of at least the news flow lately. But to your point, I guess, there is no doubt that it is going to continue to fuel the need for more and more security, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and just to go back to the broader markets, I mean, Mike, one of the things we haven't even brought up this week, really, is the Santa rally, the Santa Claus rally, which we are in the midst of. I just wonder, given the fact that this word is so overused this year, but we're in the midst of this unprecedented, um, I guess, scenario, if you will, from a macro standpoint, whether that's even going to hold up coming into 2021. It so far is. uh, We've had a positive bias. We've hit the new highs. And and let's be clear. This is talking about the five last trading days of a given year, the first two of the next year. It's just a one little patch uh, of the calendar that tends to be the strongest of any. Um, And mostly it seems to be portfolio positioning and flows into the new year in anticipation of the relief of tax loss and whatever the factors might be. But I think you've got what you what you on average get out of uh, out of that upside. So um, and and often it was considered to be more of like a a, a warning uh, signal. If, in fact, you didn't get uh, strength during this phase, then the following year you might hit some uh, some rough patches. So very difficult to, to extrapolate too much out of it, except to say it's been strong seasonally on a quarter to date base, really the last two months of the year, uh, November and December, extraordinarily strong. And I actually saw some data, uh, Ryan Dietrich over at LPL talking about when we've had those periods of basically massive gains, November, December, surprisingly enough for some, the strength tends to continue. It has good implications if you go out several months or the following year. So haven't been many instances of this. The Almanac doesn't necessarily tell you how to uh, really run things. But it is interesting that, uh, that when we get these trending markets, it, it's been tough to knock them off course. I look at the bond market. Treasury yields have had no real give to them. They've been hovering 10 years under, under 1%, but in an uptrend, not really backing off no matter what the news has been. You see credit spreads incredibly stra- uh, strong, meaning very tight. So all of it is, is fitting together, and uh, we're not seeing a lot of signs of stress. That's what I would watch for going into to January, David. Yeah. Uh, something else I'm watching for, Mike, every day, of course, is SPACs. We talk yep. about them every day for a reason. It's been the year of the you SPAC got a full in screen for us, David? to be. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I've always got them. You know that, Morgan. And we haven't brought it up three times before we actually talk about it. But uh, today, um, today we've got, well, three different. You remember, you know, there's uh, to explain to our viewers, because we like to come back to it and sort of it's still new to some. I mean, you've got yeah. when a SPAC actually issues its own shares and raises money. Then you've got the day when they announce their prospective deal their merger, so to speak. And by the way, the bankers love this because it gets counted on the merger tables and it's obviously also a way to go public. So it's an IPO route as well. Um, But it is considered a merger, even though eh, it's not really your typical merger Mm. and acquisition. And then you've got when they actually close the deal. And we've got kind of all all three uh, today, or at least the two of those three. Perella Weinberg going public via SPAC. Now we'd heard about this um, a couple of weeks ago, there was reporting on this a few weeks ago, but they announced it this morning. DMY and Rush Street, you see it there. Uh, that's a gaming uh, company uh, that they're doing. And then Romeo Power is going to join us actually later, potentially a, a competitor for QuantumScape, which 
we know well, has been one of the great performers. Of course, it was Kensington was the SPAC. It's QuantumScape now because that deal closed back in November uh, in terms of the new generation of battery technology for EV cars. Uh, let me focus a bit quickly on Perella Weinberg, of course, a firm I've known well, advisory. By the way, this is only the advisory part of Perella Weinberg. It's not the asset management part, which is owned by its partners, will remain private. So this mm. is the advisory part of the firm, valuing it at around $975 million. The current partners uh, and uh, management of the firm will roll in. Uh, some of their early investors, um, some Middle Eastern investors, Qatar and the like, are going to use this as an opportunity to sell some of their uh, stock to the SPAC, some of their ownership, $110 million. The rest of the money that will be raised, they'll use for general corporate purposes. There is a Pipe of 125 million coming in as well. We're talking, Mike, about a, a 500 million dollar revenue number this year. They're saying as much as 575 million next year, and you can see how it's performing uh, at this point. Uh, this is Betsy Cohen from this uh, fintech acquisition corp. She's done a number of these uh, SPACs, um, but it's interesting, Mike, to see yeah. a investment banking firm, an advisory boutique going public in this manner, of course, a company that has, in fact, advised other companies on the SPAC route. Absolutely. Um, it's slightly amusing that we're talking about a, a nominally a fintech um, SPAC that's buying, you know, uh, basically an advisory firm that they, it's people talking to people. However, um, it's interesting that the strength in the uh, investment banking boutique stocks, the ones that are already public, has been very profound. Molis uh, up 40 percent, Houlihan, Loki, Evercore, all up more than 40 percent uh, this year. Uh, it's been one of the stronger parts of the financial services sector. Uh, PJT up 60 percent. So I do think this is a little bit of a sweet yeah. spot for that business. And, uh, and you know, certainly uh, very financially sophisticated uh, seller and buyer uh, in this instance. It really just seems like the more efficient mechanism uh, to get to uh, a public listing. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you actually pointed that out. Yeah, sorry, Morgan, no, Mike, in terms of the performance of, of some of those boutiques, whether it is Evercore or PJT, as you point out as well, uh, it is interesting. I mean, we're talking here as much as perhaps 16 times net income. Obviously, the margins are quite high uh, at these firms. They're not huge tax, taxpayers as well. Um, and, you know, you base it off of revenue multiples and high margins. Uh, and potentially, Morgan, a good proxy for sort of economic activity. Everything I hear indicates that it is going to continue to be a fairly strong M&A environment, at least so far as we head into next year. Yeah, and I, I also think it's going to be interesting to see how this trades and how this performs as well versus some of these other high-flying SPACs um, that we have seen this year. I mean, it's become – the vehicle has become, uh, I guess, uh, I guess a um, – a preferred, a preferred uh, mode, I guess, if you will, for, as you mentioned, EV um, and some of these other sort of newer emerging technologies. Space, we've seen a number of space companies that are now doing these types of deals right now as well. So companies that are a little more uncharted, maybe like still very low revenues, let alone not even close to profitability. So to see a company like Perella Weinberg uh, use this type of vehicle, um, it'll be interesting to see how, it's, how it is received uh, by Wall Street when it does start trading. And, you know, I was just going to mention uh, just yeah. slightly off this, David, you know, JD.com today, stock's up just about 1%, not yep. that much. It was up yesterday. So there's reports that they're considering spinning off uh, the cloud and, and AI business. And you have to imagine that we have uh, an incredibly ripe atmosphere for exactly this kind of thing, where it's a larger company looking for pieces of their 
uh, corporate structure that looks something like some of the hottest sectors in the market. Now, Intel probably doesn't have a lot of that, but it's still talking about let's find ways to surface value of embedded assets uh, that we can comp against some of the hottest stuff out there. Clearly, some of the SPACs are doing uh, exactly this and more, uh, you know, less mature businesses. But uh, that would seem like there's a ton of, um, of kind of potential energy in that part of the, uh, the M&A deal market next year if, in fact, uh, things you know, hold together economically. You have $2 yeah. trillion dollars of cash on corporate balance sheets and, and a lot of agitation probably for companies of, uh, that have not performed as well and the stocks have languished uh, for them to try to catalyze things. Yeah. And again, you're referring to JD's cloud and AI businesses potentially being explored, as you say, the feasibility in terms of a potential spin. Intel owns Mobileye. That's one name. Yeah. To Mike, to your point, that perhaps would be more highly valued in the public markets yet again. Of course, they bought that business, Israeli-based business, a number of years ago. Uh, and being pushed by Dan Loeb to potentially uh, think about selling non-core assets, not clear. I don't believe that they've considered it at all at this point, based on what I've heard at Intel. Um, all right, let's get a check on what else is driving today's market action. And for that, we get over to Bob Pisani. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, good to see you, David. Uh, so uh, we're essentially at new highs. Let's not quibble about a few points. And this is the market that just doesn't say no to anything. Vaccine news, good, bad, we're all right. Uh, you know, stimulus, not sure what exactly is going on with the $2,000 checks, but the market's okay. So take a look uh, with what's going on. You'll notice emerging markets have just been doing great recently. It's a new high on the EEM there. Of course, weak dollar has been helping that out. Uh, we've got China, one of the best performing markets in the world. You want to watch MCHI. That owns Hong Kong, mainland China, and U.S.-based China stocks. Uh, that's up 25, 28% on the year. Uh, tech, of course, has been the outstanding performer on the year, up 40% in uh, consumer discretionary as well, of course. Uh, that's got Amazon in it. That's up 30% or so. The banks had a nice little rally in the in the quarter, but it's been flattish for the last month, and it's still down. I mean, bank stocks down 10, 12, 13% on the year. Remember that, everybody who thinks there's some massive bank rally going on. There's been a bit of a revolt on valuations in the last few days. Uh, some of the smaller names that all the traders love to play have been down this week. They're up a little bit today, but you see the Palantirs and the DoorDashes, Plug Power, that's a favorite trading stock. Uh, for the day traders, Cloudflare, Peloton, uh, the other CrowdStrike and Etsy, they're all kind of down this week. These stocks have absurdly high valuations, of course, but they're favorites uh, of, of the crowd. But I want to point out this exuberance is not just these smaller favorites. The mega caps are really pricey, too. I mean, look at this. Apple's 31 times 2021 uh, numbers. That's really pricey. Uh, maybe it was higher in August a little bit. But other than that, you've got to go back many years to see Apple uh, at 31. Microsoft, too, at 30. Alphabet at 28. These are really high. Again, maybe a little higher a couple months ago, but historically really high. Facebook, that looks like a bargain. 26 times forward earnings. So uh, just bear this in mind with, with the fact that we're paying a lot of money for this stuff. And you're paying a lot of money for industrials, too. All our favorite industrials, uh, uh, we're looking at uh, Honeywell, 26 times forward earnings. I've been watching Honeywell for 20 years. Uh, put up the industrials. I don't remember when Honeywell was 26 times forward earnings. Those are in, these are industrial stocks. They don't trade these kinds of multiples normally. And Caterpillar, which got that big upgrade today, that's uh, in absurd territory, too. Really high. Ingersoll Rand and Norfolk Southern. You don't get big industrials that normally trade in the 20s 
uh, very often. So this is a sign of optimism, sign of optimism on the reopening. You want more signs of optimism? It's all over the place. This ETF flows in December. I follow these flows very carefully. It's a good way. Instead of looking at prices, look at the flows because people have to come in and cra track creation of these new shares. People get enthusiastic. Demand goes up. They have to go in, create new shares of the ETFs, and buy the underlying stocks. It's a great popularity contest. Guess what they're buying? Titanic inflows. I'm talking record inflows in the last couple months. What are they buying? Not big cap, not mega cap. They're buying small caps, emerging markets, large cap value, and even investment-grade bonds. Good heavens. Folks, this is the reopening story right there. You want So put it all together. I don't want to be curmudgeonly about this. We have record stock prices. We have record in ETF inflows, which is a sign of exuberance overall. We have high margin debt levels. We had Thomas Petterfee on yesterday uh, from Interactive Brokers specifically talking about that. And we've got high investor optimism, okay? So what, what the market is saying is, we are anticipating one Lollapalooza of an earnings rebound uh, beginning largely in the second quarter of next year. Let's hope that happens because the market is very much positioned for exactly that to happen. Guys, back to you. Yeah, it's interesting, Bob, and especially when you put up some of those charts of the industrials. I mean, Honeywell, I know it's been an industrial tech story in the last couple of years as well. Um, so it seems like investors are buying into that. I also got to wonder the expectations around a big infrastructure deal, uh, how much of that is also fueling some of those names too. Bob Pisani, thank you. It's time now for a bond okay. report and some data, and Rick Santelli has that for us. Hey, Rick. Hi, Morgan. Yes, indeed, we have our December, our final read for Chicago PMI. Uh, last look, uh, last month's final was 58.2, 59.5, 59 59.5, which means the entire back half of 2020 from June till now is an expansion territory above 50. And what's really interesting, we know COVID, of course, has changed everything for 2020, but this particular number set has been sub 50 from July of 19 all the way through June of this year when it popped in July back over that level. So it's very interesting to monitor, of course, the strength we are seeing. We haven't been in the 60s, uh, higher than 62.4, which is this year's high, going all the way back to 2018. So it's really gotten quite powerful. Now let's get to the charts. Look at a two-week of 10s, which should jump right out at you. We keep getting into the mid-90s, right under the current high-yield close, which is around 97 basis points, which takes us all the way back to March. We'll call it 10 months. But today, it's all about foreign exchange. Look at the dollar index. This is an April 2018 chart at the lowest levels of more than two and a half years. Keep April 2018 in mind. Euro versus dollar. Best levels, more than two and a half years. Pound versus dollar, with Brexit coming very shortly, basically at the best level in two and a half years. But this one is toying with the best level because it's pretty much equal to where it was trading uh, just a few days ago, the 17th of December. So we really want to watch these current levels. The dollar versus the Chinese yuan. Best levels in exactly two and a half years in favor of the yuan. That's June of 2018. And finally, the dollar versus the Chinese yen, a 10-month high going back to March of this year. So the dollar index is really suffering under the weight of deficits, of course, as we continue to monitor not only how central banks are going to have to deal with it as we start to clear the COVID zone, but all central banks worldwide, debt, that is universal in 2020. It's every country and every economy you look at. David, Morgan, Mike, back to all three.
All right, Rick, thank you very much. COVID-19, one year later after the break. Stay with us. Today marks one year of COVID-19 after a 34-year-old ophthalmologist in China posted a message in his WeChat group alerting other doctors that a new disease had emerged in his hospital. Eunice Yoon has a lot more for us on this anniversary. Eunice. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, after that doctor, uh, Dr. Li Wenliang, had posted the message, he was silenced by the police. He later caught the virus and then died from it and uh, is very much still seen as a hero here in China. So um, since then, life has um, relatively come back to normal. For example, at this sports bar restaurant, um, it's pretty full, uh, considering um, all the concerns about the pandemic. Um, and uh, because of all the, the lockdowns over the year and the travel restrictions, especially on those wanting to come into the country, the um, pandemic has actually largely subsided. And in fact, businesses have been coming back. The economy is on track to post 8 percent growth in 2021. Uh, life, though, isn't entirely the way it used to be, though. Uh, for example, here in Beijing, there have been uh, several mini outbreaks. And uh, because of that, uh, 1.2 million people have been tested. And um, just as another um, personal anecdote, the, uh, my New Year's Eve uh, plans actually have been canceled. And I bring that up only because um, it just shows that, that businesses here are still uh, losing money uh, despite um, the, the efforts here to try to control the pandemic. Morgan? Yeah. It's incredible that we're marking a year uh, right now. Eunice Yoon, we do wish you a happy New Year's nonetheless. Thank you for joining us to finish off this hour. Uh, major averages are all higher, and we've got another hour of Squawk on the Street coming up, so don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. And welcome back. It's peanut buttery, it's chocolatey, it's the flavor merger America craved. That's right, the Peanut Butter Group and Chocolatey Corp have become one. With Chocolatey Corp bringing indulgence to the table and Peanut Butter's eat-anytime ability, it's easy to see how their Jif peanut butter and chocolate-flavored spread will revolutionize snacking. One stock trader even told me, and I quote, Normally I just buy and sell, but this I'm going to eat. Experience the Jif PBC hype today.